1: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: Welcome to a one-off episode of the TLS podcast. Terry Eagleton is a man who needs little introduction, not just to readers of the TLS, but to pretty much anyone who has worked in or even vaguely near the humanities sphere. He's written for the TLS on topics as varied as artists' manifestos, revenge tragedies, and Postmodernity's many discontents. All, of course, characteristically slathered with a hefty dollop of theory. And all the while, writing books that no student in the 80s, 90s and beyond could ignore, even if they might not swallow Eagleton's views wholesale. Apart from Marxist and Christian, terms like provocative, ideological, and in one instance, apparently, little squirt, as well as plenty more classically critical terms, tend to gravitate around Eagleton. He has, to sum up, made plenty of enemies as well as friends in the field. So when I heard he was going to be delivering the annual Theos Lecture on the death of God and the war on terror, I thought it absolutely worth popping down to record it. As regular TLS listeners know, we have a weekly show of picks from the paper out every Thursday morning, as well as the odd one-off, including exclusive interviews with and readings from award-winning novelists like Ema McBride and Rose Tremaine. So this lecture is one of the latter, TLS editor Ste Abel and I, that's Thea uh, Linarduzzi, will be back for our normal weekly slot on Thursday, when we'll be getting to grips with the life and work of Claude livy strauss and unease in contemporary Africa, among many other things. But for now, though, here is Terry Eagleton on the not unproblematic, not unhigh stakes, and not unincendiary twin matters of the death of God and the war on terror. Just a just a little chat
3: then. Atheism is nothing like as easy as it looks. I mean, maybe simple enough at the individual level. In fact, you might argue that at the individual level, atheism or agnosticism is too easy, uh, that a lot of atheists and agnostics buy their unbelief on the cheap, as it were. And I mean by that, that they set up caricatures or accept caricatures of Christian belief, I'll only talk about Christianity here, which no self-respecting theologian would sign on for for a moment and then they have great fun in bowling them over. You can play that game quite a long time. Um, It's a bit, say, like rejecting feminism on the grounds that feminists are simply out to chop men into little pieces and feed them to their violence. Yes, well... Thinking of Donald Trump, that may not be quite as bad. (laughs) Um, Just take as one example out of many, take the doctrine of creation, so-called, which almost all atheists, and in fact quite a few Christians, seem to believe is all about how the world got started. How did things get off the ground? A kind of bogus science, a myth of origins. That man whose name I always forget, famous atheistic scientist, but the only thing I remember about him is that his wife used to be in Doctor Who, Uh, Dawson, um, Dawkins, Dawkins, yes, good old fashioned 19th century rationalist, yes, of that type, Um, think this, the doctrine of Creation is about how the world got off the ground how ingenious God was to manufacture it out of nothing whatsoever. The doctrine of creation, as any self-respecting first-year theology student ought to know, has nothing whatsoever to do with how the world started, to do with a lot of things, but among other things, it's to do with the fact that it doesn't need to exist, that like everything we see around us, not least us, it's purely gratuitous gift might just as well have been nothing at all. The universe in that perspective is entirely pointless and on that at least atheists and believers might agree. God made it for Christian doctrine just out of his own (coughs) eternal self-delight or to (coughs) to use a more technical theological term just for the hell of it. (laughs) In fact one of the greatest theologians ever Thomas Aquinas, thought it was perfectly reasonable to believe that the world had no origin at all, that it existed from all eternity. He didn't, Aquinas didn't in fact believe that, as did his great mentor Aristotle, but Aquinas thought it was perfectly rational to believe that, yet Aquinas believed firmly in the doctrine of creation. He saw no contradiction there at all. So, rejecting Christianity has to be a bit tougher than that, You mustn't give yourself too easy a ride, you know, buy your rejection on the cheap. Um, Just as believing in the gospel uh, is pretty tough, in fact, one might say, you know, frankly, being true to the Christian gospel is clearly impossible. It is an absurd belief to be true to. I mean, it means, for example, abandoning your friends, your family, Almost every reference to the family in the so-called New Testament is deeply hostile. Uh, and being prepared to be killed, uh, probably by the state, in the name of justice and love and comradeship, as Jesus explicitly warns his comrades that they would be. And the other reason for the impossibility of faith is that if God does exist, then he's deeply in love with Donald Trump ludicrous proposition, that is, you know, (laughs) the single most powerful argument for atheism (laughs) you could possibly imagine. That's that's at the individual level, yes? For whole societies, for whole cultures to go atheist, it has proved remarkably hard, much harder than one would imagine. In fact, you could write the history of modernity as littered with the rubble of failed surrogates for the Almighty, all the way from reason, geist, science, culture, humanity, to nature, the people, the nation, the state, and Tom Cruise. No sooner has God been smuggled, been kicked out of the front door, than very typically, in a recurrent pattern, he smuggled in again by the back door, usually in some more or less heavy disguise. I don't, of course, mean to suggest that all those phenomena are nothing but stand-ins for God, but they've all fulfilled that function at various times in their career. And I think the reason for that is that religion has traditionally played such a vital role in legitimating political regimes that our rulers could hardly look upon the disappearance of God in the 19th century with any degree of equanimity. And that's one of several reasons why there have been various doomed attempts to fill his enormous shoes. I say doomed, or largely doomed, because religion is an exceedingly hard act to follow. Whether you believe in it or not isn't the point there. It just, for believers and non-believers, It's, from that point of view, an extremely hard act to follow. It has, in fact, proved to be the most tenacious, enduring, widespread, deep-seated, symbolic system humanity has ever known. Not least because it has the curious capacity to connect the everyday mundane practices of billions upon billions of ordinary people with the most august, transcendent, imperishable truths. It's the most successful form of popular culture in human history, though I wager you won't find it on a single cultural studies course, <laughs> um, because of the biases of their supposedly liberal-minded practitioners. Culture, of course, is a concept to mean various things, as a, a recent remarkably cheap and extraordinarily attractive book entitled Culture, written by um, myself (laughs) um, uh, tries to argue Um, but there are two major meanings one which are almost antithetical one culture in the sense of the values and beliefs of a cultivated minority or the way of life of a whole people and culture in the latter sense the sense of the way of life of a whole people can nowadays be defined succinctly as what people are prepared to kill for. Culture is what people are prepared to kill for, or die for. Now, nobody is prepared to kill for Balzac or Beethoven, except perhaps for a few weird people hiding out in caves, too ashamed to come out and face the rest of us. Um, But when it comes to culture as language, symbol, genealogy, belief, ethnicity, community, and so on, then That's widely considered to be a reason for giving up one's life. Culture is to die for. Only religion, however, as far as I'm aware, has been able to hold together those two meanings of culture, those almost antithetical meanings of culture, the aesthetic and the anthropological, if you like, to weld them into a whole, uniting priest and laity, intellectual and populace, idea and institution, metaphysical speculation and popular piety, ritual and social reality in ways that any other symbolic system can only look on with envy. Today, of course, the most successful, wildly successful substitute for religion is sport. It is sport, which is the opium of the people and not religion. Just imagine what would happen politically if it were to be abolished by Act of Parliament, yes. It's sport which lays on the weekly liturgies, supplies the canon of legendary heroes, saints as it were, and provides the sense of solidarity and community which one might previously have found in a chapel or in a cathedral. But we now come to an enormous irony which is this, that after a whole series of botched attempts to dislodge the deity from his throne and replace him with some version, some suitably secularized version of himself that in turn would turn out to be unmasked, yes. After that whole series of doomed attempts, European civilization finally succeeded in dispatching him to the outer darkness. Not as it happens, with Nietzsche's defiant, ecstatic announcement of the death of God, but about a century later, in its so-called postmodern phase, when capitalist society had now changed to the point where Nietzsche's clarion call, dangerous enough and discarded enough in his own day, could now be both safely and conveniently heeded. he couldn't really in his own time, because when middle class society is still in the process of constructing and consolidating itself, lending itself some solid legitimacy and a foundation, it tends to need some fairly grand ideological motifs, progress, science, humanity, reason, and so on, the supreme being. But once it's settled down to the mundane Post metaphysical business of making profit, uh, it can afford to be faithless, and indeed, it can benefit from being so, because faith, whether religious or otherwise, is a divisive and controversial affair, not good in that respect for social cohesion. I'm going to go on from here to speak to preach in uh, Trinity College, Cambridge, where I was once a student. When the chaplain rang me up, he said, "I'd like you to talk about profits." I don't know. <laughs> no, he didn't mean Google, he meant Isaiah and so on. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, a consistency of self and belief doesn't fit particularly well with the vol- volatile, adaptive, mutable human subject of advanced capitalism. Indeed, postmodern capitalism makes the disastrous mistake of regarding conviction itself as at least incipiently. Dogmatic and authoritarian. It doesn't like conviction. You know, begin with a robust belief in goblins and you end up with the gulag. And this fear of dogmatism is clearly the reason why so many young people these days say like every four seconds, you know, because it's nine o'clock sounds unpleasantly authoritative and, but no, it's like. Nine o'clock is suitably tentative, provisional, exploratory, (laughs) open-ended, and so on. I think uh, when Boris Johnson was asked whether he had any convictions, he said that he might have picked one up once for a driving offense. (laughs) (laughs) But I should add, of course, that the faithlessness of modern capitalist middle-class society is also an inestimable gain. Because... There's something that you might call the symbolic dimension of human life, this is another story really, but of which there are three major components, religion by far historically the most important, sexuality of next importance and art not that important, but part of the symbolic sphere as it were. And what happens for all kinds of interesting reasons I can't go into in the course of modernity is that all three of them become privatised. The privatised version of religion, is known as Protestantism. And in many ways, this is a great gain as far as sexuality goes. It means that the purity police won't break down your bedroom door anymore. But it also means that these things are now nobody's business but your own, you know, like breeding gerbils, for example, or collecting life-size effigies of Adele. <laughs> It represents at once an enormously welcome emancipation from the Ancien Regime and a kind of withering of the social sense. These things are now just, as it were, on the level of pastimes or private hobbies. The point is how that advanced or postmodern capitalism can afford to go relativist, pragmatist and anti-foundational post-absolutist, post-metaphysical, post-theological, even post-historical, as the same regime couldn't afford to do in its earlier, as it were, more adolescent faith. There, it needed some grand ideological motif, as I said, to weld it together, to give it a kind of coherent identity. But belief is not what holds capitalist society together, as it's what holds the Boy Scout movement, or the Lutheran Church together. Too much belief is neither necessary nor desirable. It's politically dangerous, It's controversial, divisive, and it's commercially superfluous. So as long as the citizens of those social orders roll out of bed and pay their taxes and go into work and refrain from beating up an excessive number of police officers, they can believe more or less what they like, which is absolutely astounding, you know, which most citizens of antiquity or Middle Ages would have viewed with utter bemusement. They can believe more or less what they like, provided it isn't something which interferes or undermines that very framework. In the eyes of of Nietzsche, grandfather of postmodernism, truly noble spirits refuse to be the prisoners of their own principles. Instead, they treat their own most cherished opinions with a certain cavalier detachment, adopting and discarding them at will. W.B. Yeats shared this idea. One's beliefs are more like one's manservants to be hired or fired as the fancy takes you than like your bodily organs. Contrast that then with the philosopher Charles Taylor's insistence that belief of some kind, not necessarily religious, is actually constitutive of selfhood, that one couldn't have an identity, a human identity, and not believe. Though the convictions in question clearly don't need to be absolute or implacable. A left-wing historian, A.J.P. Taylor, once informed a committee interviewing him for an Oxford fellowship, but he had some extreme political views, but held them moderately. <laughs> or as they say about the English, if ever we come to drive on the other side of the road, we'll do so gradually. <laughs> you may, of course, still have standing by, as it were, in the wing, some kind of rather grander metaphysical discourse that you can reel on stage, uh, not least in the middle of a political crisis. You might still need that to be somewhere on hand, but otherwise, as far as belief goes, as far as principle conviction goes, it's a matter of endorsing the view of the English gentleman who remarked that when religion begins to interfere with your everyday life, it's time to give it up—a bit like alcohol, really, in that respect. Uh, was a view that Jesus Christ was imprudent enough to disregard. What Nietzsche was perhaps the first to see was not only that God was dead on his feet, but it was the stout bourgeois himself, not some bunch of long-haired atheistic lefties who had done him in. It was the stout bourgeois himself who had undermined the basis for belief in his own God. It was the inherently rationalist, pragmatist, utilitarian logic of the marketplace that had rendered and increasingly rendered such high-sounding metaphysical notions implausible, which is to say, in an arresting irony, that the material base of middle-class society was busy undermining its own ideological superstructure, calling bits of it into question. The faithlessness of advanced capitalism It's not, in the first place, a matter of what individuals may or may not believe. It's simply built into its routine practices. Um, The market would continue to behave faithlessly, to find conviction, an obstacle, even if every one of its participants was a born-again Christian. The stout bourgeois is a true believer in his church, when he's in his church, or in the bosom of his family, and a rank atheist in his counting house. That was the contradiction that was riving European middle-class society, and it was he himself, Nietzsche saw in his own way, who was putting himself-
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: ...self ideologically out of business, who was undermining the very metaphysical verities on which he ultimately depended in his own routine and mundane practices. God was dead... So, Nietzsche thought the most uh, astonishing event in human history, as Nietzsche thought, we killed him, and a lot of people didn't believe in him anymore, not least working people, which created an enormous ideological crisis. But people needed to convince themselves that they still did believe in him. Like Othello confronted with Desdemona's supposed infidelity, they were caught in a state of cognitive dissonance, believing and disbelieving at one and the same time. It was necessary then to pretend that God was still alive, to keep him, as it were, on a life support machine, not least because he seemed to provide the underpinnings of bourgeois morality, which in turn, so it was thought, provided the foundation of middle-class political power. The idea was that political power was based on morality and that in turn based on religious faith. So if you kicked away the foundation, the rest would come clattering down. That turned out, of course, to be a mistake. That's not the case. wasn't the case. Anyway, like Norman Bates in Psycho, the middle class consumed by Morpheus Foix had to deny their own act of dayside, had to kill God and keep him alive at the same time, frantically cleaning up the scene of the crime. I refer to Norman Bates and Saito just to show you that I'm not just a stuffy old intellectual. um, I'm a human being. I I even know who Rufus Wainwright is, for example. (laughs) Um, So the economy was a rank atheist, yes, but the state which stood guard over it needs in some ways to be a, a firm, a true believer, not least in times of crisis. Nietzsche's own solution to this contradiction was hair-raisingly radical. Nietzsche was perhaps the most radical philosopher of the 19th century. Philosophically speaking, far more radical than Karl Marx. No doubt about it. Um, What Nietzsche was really saying was, when he said God is dead, is that if the metaphysical superstructure no longer works, if people don't buy that anymore, if you keep subverting it by your own secular, profane activity, then accept that you don't need it anymore and just throw it away. You know, like the little child with his or her blanket, just throw it away. And the astonishing thing that will happen is that nothing will happen. You'll realize you don't need it. Accept that God is dead and seize advantage of his absence to manufacture your own values in the manner of the Übermensch, the overman. And that was far too radical a proposal for its own time when, as I say, grand narratives of one kind or another were still on the agenda, were still the order of the day. Um, But it became more and more feasible as capitalism evolved into its advanced or postmodern phase. In fact, you might describe postmodernity Which is by no means coextensive with late capitalism, it's a particular important part of its culture, but it's not the whole of it. You might describe it, perhaps a little rashly, as the first truly atheistic civilization. One that abandons not only foundations, grand narratives, transcendental signifiers, absolute values, and the like, but has no problem about it at all. Whereas high modernism, Feels that it should do all that, but is in a radically nostalgic for those can still, as it were, out of the corner of its eye, glimpse, you know, in the in the hollow at the center of the literary work, glimpse some kind of transcendence which disappears the moment you look at it straight, but which you can't actually rid yourself of. Postmodernism is too young, as it were, to remember a time of tension of that kind. It even in a certain sense, you might say abandoned subjectivity itself, at least of the kind of depth where faith might germinate. And what was the next enormous irony to come along? Two aircraft slammed into the World Trade Center and a new full-bloodedly metaphysical grand narrative that of the conflict between advanced capitalism and a certain twisted reading uh, of Islam was launched with a fanfare at just the point where the end-of-history merchants in the West, giddy with triumphalistic fantasies inspired by the West's triumph in the Cold War, had declared all that grandiose stuff to be over and done with, all that stuff about reason and science and so on, humanity to be over. Once the Cold War had been effectively won, some Western apologists considered that they no longer stood in need of ardent convictions, fundamental truths, grand narratives, and sizable doctrinal systems. And as I say, that was convenient in many ways because they were something of an embarrassment, of an encumbrance. Um, It's all very well for American politicians to talk about God, the family, this great nation of ours, and our brave (laughs) men and women in uniform. But the United States is ideologically exceptionalist in this, as in other respects. At once, one of the most materialistic and one of the most full-blooded metaphysical civilizations on Earth. Very interesting combination of that in the United States. This is, by the way, not just standard leftist anti-Americanism, as you may suspect it to be. I mean, some of my best friends are <laughs> <laughs> um, my wife for example, and uh, three of my children. Uh, But, you know, you can't really get away with that kind of high-toned talk in the more cynical, hard-boiled milieu of Paris or London where people will simply stare at their shoes and wait for it to stop, as I do whenever Schoenberg comes on the radio. (laughs) Anyway, the irony was that no sooner had a thoroughly atheistic culture or or large sector of a culture arrived on the scene, one which was no longer anxiously in search for this or that placeholder for God, which was laid back and cool about all that, that didn't even know what a metaphysical value looked like, let alone regret its apparent disappearance. The sooner had that happened when, would you believe it, the deity himself was back on the agenda with a vengeance. But not this time, not this time, on the side of civilization. Not a suitably blue-blazered, short-haired, white-collar, golf-playing god, but a god who had shifted over to the side of so-called barbarism, a wrathful, alien, brown-skinned deity. The Almighty, it appeared, was not safely nailed down in his coffin, after all, he had simply changed address. He had migrated to the hills of Montana and the souks of the Arab world, and despite his premature obituary notice, his fan club was steadily growing, at least in the evangelization of Latin America. Fundamentalism, whether Texan or Taliban, has its source surely in anxiety more than in hatred which perhaps may be a dimly comforting point to make about it. It's the pathological mindset of those who feel washed up and humiliated by the brave new world of advanced capitalism and who might therefore conclude that the only way to draw attention to their undervalued existence is to blast the heads off small children in the name of Allah or blow up play schools in Oklahoma City. What had happened was that smaller, more fragile nations that had suffered, not least under the West's new post-Cold War triumphalism, finally unleashed a backlash in the form of radical Islam. At this point in the argument, spokespersons for the British media, to whom one says such things, invariably ask, are you not, therefore, by saying this, somehow justifying terrorism? obtusely confusing explaining with excusing. All of those historians who've tried to explain the rise of Nazism, are they apologising for it? Are they excusing it? Trevor Roper, for example? But this meant, again ironically that the closing down of one grand narrative, the so-called end of history, end of enlightenment, simply served to help open up Another one, the so-called War on Terror, which is likely to be on narrative for some time to come. It was not to be sure the first time that a declaration of the end of history had proved slightly premature. Hegel believed with endearing modesty that history had now culminated inside his own head, But what did this do? It simply generated a whole series of vigorous rebuttals, you know, Kierkegaard, Schopenhauer, Marx, etc., uh, which simply piled upon more history. All acts that try to bring history to an end are themselves historical acts and simply succeed in generating more history. The act of blowing the whistle on history and calling the whole thing off is self-refuting. Much the same, incidentally, though this is another story, is true of the 20th century revolutionary artistic avant gardes who in seeking to eradicate all previous history, everything that happened up to 10 minutes ago is antiquity, clear a luminous space for their own utterly innovative, unimaginably new projects, simply succeeded in heaping a little more history on what was there already. And the next irony of the whole affair to mention, I think, is that it was, of course, the liberal agnostic West which actually had a hand in bringing this illiberal theocratic antagonist into existence. Even if it still refuses, in Prospero's words about Caliban, the end of the Tempest, to acknowledge this thing of darkness as in part its own, not entirely itself but in part, itself. An agnosticism designed to ward off fanaticism, actually succeeded in stoking it by some of its own predatory foreign policies. So the West had helped to spawn not only secularism, but the backlash to it, fundamentalism as well, a most creditable feat of dialectics. In the earlier decades of the 20th century, the rolling back of liberal, secular, and left nationalist forces in the Muslim world by the West for its own imperial purposes. It supported, of course, the massacre of half a million leftists in Indonesia, for example, created a vacuum, a political vacuum in that vital geopolitical region into which Islamism was then able to move, though you won't read much about that in the newspapers or, with great respect to Gordon, on the BBC. What we end up with then is a world divided down the middle, or divided somewhere, between those who believe too much, fundamentalists of various stripes, whether Texan or Taliban, and those who believe too little, chief executives, technocrats. Robbie Williams, and other hirelings of the inherently inherently faithless order, as it were, objectively faithless order, whatever its adherents may piously believe of advanced capitalism. And to paraphrase my national poet, uh, there are those who lack all conviction and others who are full of passionate intensity. And then, of course, there are just a select few, like myself, who stand in the middle, impeccably balanced and judicious, (laughs) leaning neither too far this way nor too far that way. Moreover, not just two camps, but that in a kind of stalled dialectic, each one contributes to reinforcing the other. Um, So that the unity implicit in the phrase nation-state, one of the great achievements of modernity, of course, the nation-state, how do you weld ethnicity and politics together you have a nation state the unity implicit in that idea splinters apart into a narrow ethnic particularism on the one hand and an abstract globalization on the other and each as i say paints the other constantly into a corner in a kind of frozen dialectic as western politics is increasingly reduced to administration the manufacture of consensus conflict, management, and so on, it ceases to provide a language for various issues which are accordingly driven out of the political sphere in order to take up home in the monstrous and pathological dimension of what Jacques Lacan would call the real, so that one form of anti-politics, the reduction of politics to sheer manipulation and managerialism, succeeds in breeding another form, of anti-politics, which has despaired of achieving its aims or articulating its identity through the given political institutions. When it comes to belief, however, the West is now surely at a distinct disadvantage because in yet another irony, it's, it engaged in the post-Cold War years in a kind of ideological disarmament, imagining. Uh, It could get by on a mixture of pragmatism, culturalism, relativism, secularism, anti-foundationalism, and so on. And at just that moment, would you believe it, it was confronted by a new full-bloodedly absolutist, foundationalist, metaphysical antagonist. It's true that the West continues formally at least to believe in God and freedom and democracy and so on, but it's just that those convictions have to survive in a culture of scepticism bred by its routine material practices, which then gravely debilitates them. So that you might say, as the linguisticians might say, the West is caught in a kind of performative contradiction between what it does and what it says it does between its routine practices and the ways it describes those to itself. But if you really want to know what somebody believes, of course, you look not, at least in the first place, at what they say, you look at the beliefs implicit in their practice, the beliefs implicit in their actions, which may run clean contrary to what, as it were, they they declare hand on heart. And it's thus that men and women may not actually believe in God, but may well think that they do, partly because of course believing in God is not some kind of state of mind, just as, you know, just as charity isn't some kind of warm, cosy feeling, the model of charity for the New Testament is the love of strangers and enemies, there's nothing much cosy about that. For the New Testament, love is not in the first place a feeling, as it is for a rather debased, romantic, and erotic tradition in the West. It's a form of practical life. And it doesn't really matter what you feel in your heart, how cosy or not you feel about the recipients of that charity. What I've been talking about, I think, is one reason for the so-called God debate. Those two things are not perhaps generally yoked together as they are in my title, but that, that's really what I want to argue because the final irony that I have to report is that just at the moment when a postmodern West was in the process of junking the kind of ideas, large ideas which have served it supremely well in the past as an earlier phase of capitalist development, which were now increasingly felt to be sheer metaphysical baggage, you know, Geist, and progress, liberty, humanity, all of those 19th century clarion calls. <sighs> At just that moment, some Western thinkers felt the need to reach back into the previous history of the European middle classes and come up with a rather crude, sort of off the peg version of enlightenment. Old fashioned 19th century rationalists like Richard, the man whose wife was in Doctor Who, sorry. Um, And the the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, with whom I used to distribute left-wing leaflets outside a factory in Oxford until he saw sense and I didn't. Um, These guys may well have other reasons for arguing against religion, and some of the reasons are superb, they're superb. Uh, But it's significant, isn't it even so, that we should once again be hearing the supposedly clapped out language of reason, science, progress, humanity, at just the point when the West, confronted with radical Islam, seems in need of some rather more robust self gratification than postmodern modernism can provide it with. So it is that the American death of God thinker. Sam Harris, um, despite his apparent belief that his people are the most morally upright ever to have walked the earth, was prepared in the wake of 9-11 to consider a preemptive strike against the Muslim world, resulting, he said, if necessary, I quote, in the deaths of tens of millions of innocent civilians, if it will prevent them from developing nuclear weapons. And Harris is a liberal. God knows what treats his more conservative colleagues have in store for the, for the Islamic world. I should add, of course, finally, the 9-11 to which I refer um, is, is the destruction of the World Trade Centre and not the first 9-11, which, as you know, happened on that date, more or less 30 years previously, when the United States overthrew the democratically elected government of Salvador Allende of Chile and installed in his place an odious dictator who went on to murder far more people than died in the World Trade Center. But you won't read much about that in the Murdoch press either. Indeed, when I wrote that in a piece for an American journal, they cut it out.